Hi, and welcome back to the Interintellect podcast. Today, we have a special episode with Interintellect's founder and CEO, Anna Gott, guest hosting a wide-ranging conversation with psychotherapist Dan Lowe in anticipation of his salon this weekend and the life and work of Wilhelm Reich. You can get tickets to Dan's salon and to all of Interintellect's events through the link in the description. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Dan, and hi, everybody listening to us. This is the Interintellect podcast, world-renowned podcast series, normally um, hosted by Linus Liu. I'm taking over now for this special episode, mostly because I'm just crazy interested in Dan Lowe, our um, venerated host um, at Interintellect, uh, but also his topics. Uh, Dan is a psychotherapist um, who is interested in alternative forms of exploring the human psyche uh, from ancient Chinese fortune telling to iconoclastic um, European um, psychotherapists uh, in history. Uh, So hi, Dan. Thank you for joining me for this exploration. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Where are you joining us from? Uh, From London, East London. London. It must be fun in the middle of the summer. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of horrible. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's it, 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 it's fine. Um, I'm but I'm spending a lot of time hiding from the sun at the moment. Um, yeah, I lived in London. I lived in Brussels, and I'm very familiar with um, how little um, Nordic countries can manage heat. You would yeah. think they can, but they can't. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for kind of uh, uh, braving the waters uh, with us, and nevertheless. Um, I thought that the first um, thing to explore with you would just be your interintellect journey. How did you first hear about us? How did you become an interintellect host? What, you know, what are you hoping to get out of? This is going to be your second salon, if I'm uh, not mistaken. So how, how, where, where are you on your journey right now? Well, I, I think I heard about interintellect on Twitter. Um, you know, the kind probably is an extension of. Um you know, teapot or the other part of Twitter. Like quite sort of, Otherwise, I probably would have given up participating on Twitter if it wasn't for that kind of space because it's quite positive. Um, and Do you hear this, Elon Musk? We are yeah. keeping Twitter alive. Yeah, and I and I think yeah, I think I think it was from uh, via teapot and. Um, I decide, I've I've given a number of talks on Reich before in the past. I've talked at there's a there's a kind of bookshop uh, in London called Treadwells. I've talked there, done a few other podcasts about him, and I thought, well, why not um, branch into 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 intellect? I decided to do um, a talk on the I Ching just because it's something I'm aware I know more about it than like. Uh, the average person, and I wanted to see if there was a kind of audience for it, and and, and there was, you know, I had a um, I had a nice turnout for my salon. I think it was, I think it fluctuated, but it was about eleven people, so I was quite happy with that. Um, and when you're talking about the I Ching in public, normally it kind of varies between people who, well, there's a minority of people who are a bit like me who know quite a lot about it and know something about history. Um, and there is a there is a, a much larger group of people who are just like they want to uh, they want to learn how to how, how to use it. So I talked about the history, the basic setup, the kind of metaphysics, 
um, some of the history of the translations in the West. And then I talked to the men. I gave a demonstration and I demonstrated. Uh, I did readings for a couple of people. Um, That's so interesting. I mean, I love um, I love them. I mean, di- there, there are different attendees and different hosts. Some people want to challenge themselves right away and do a super deep, deep dive. Sometimes mm-hmm. I do a more challenging salon myself. Um, or I attend a very high level literary or scientific salon and then the attendees there I always feel like congratulating because it's such a deep dive to start with but my personal method is similar to yours and I like to start for instance if I do a hiatus from hosting because for a couple of months Mm -hmm. I'm too busy um, I always go back with a topic that I'm deeply familiar with whereas Mm -hmm. you said about the I Ching you just know objectively that you know more about this, that this is an interesting topic and you happen to know more about it than the average person. That's an, that's enough, I think, for 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 being a good host. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have a PhD um, in it, but just feel comfortable with that topic or you f- feel as a host that you're a little bit more comfortable with a specific topic than other people. Yeah. That's enough, I think, to, to guide a really good conversation because the salon is about aiding other people to converse with each other it's not necessarily about giving a talk although it might contain a part when when you do that Mm -hmm. Uh, the other thing that i think you said which is super super important is that salons are really mixed audience Mm -hmm. in the sense that if you do a salon about the history of neuroscience or the cultural history of the tablecloth like you know it can be a huge range um or the joy of gardening um Mm -hmm. we'll have people who like live and breathe, you know, that topic and who will know more about it than the host. And you will have complete newbies. Um, When I did my history of war, you know, as a hobbyist historian, I had people from West Point in the room, you know, then you're asking them questions. Your job as a host is just let the guys speak, right? Mm -hmm. And then there were people like me who just love reading, I don't know, Keegan or, um, uh, uh, you know, um, historians, uh, even from back in the day, even ancients, mm. um, they are interested in history of war and they come to indulge in in, in the pleasure of, of mm. the discussion. Um, tell us a little bit about the I Ching. For, okay. if we have, I mean, I'm quite familiar with it. I love to use it as a meditation prompt, almost like Brian Eno's card deck, just get a crazy question and meditate on it. Some people use it as a form of divination instead of or next to tarot or other um, mm. Uh, forms of, of of popular divinations um do you, i mean if, if this was a short tweet thread <laughs> how mm-hmm. would you do, how would you uh how would you explain it to a complete newcomer what this is and and why so many people are drawn to it okay including um, you a psychotherapist <laughs> yeah well one of the things is i kind of would keep would maybe keep my psychotherapy slightly separate from my Ching practice and that's because because of Warham life is already quite out there. So if I start um, talking a lot, if I start to incorporate I Ching in my psychotherapy practice as well, it's kind of, I don't know, you know, it, it would kind of be even further out. So I kind of, I kind of separate the topics in my mind a little, but. Um, but technically you could do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's legal or not, but you could. I mean, some therapists use Rorschach tests or Sondi tests, which are as contested for different reasons, of course. So you could do like an itching psychotherapy session. Yeah, I've done, I have done that actually with um, one client who contacted me after hearing me on a podcast. 
but I wouldn't necessarily introduce it with a client who didn't have, who didn't bring it themselves, basically, because I don't want to impose too much on the session. But to give an outline of the I Ching, it's an ancient um, Chinese uh, sacred book, and it's a it's a philosophical text as well as being a tool for divination. It consists of um, 64 different uh, short, very short um, chapters, um, each of which has a kind of um, a six-line figure attached to it. If, uh, if no one's ever seen it, if I imagine um, uh, a series of verti six vertical lines that are either broken or unbroken, so you might have six lines all stacked above each other or six broken lines, i.e. with a gap in the middle, all stacked above each other. And th the mathematical variations of that will give you 64 hexagrams. Um, and each hexagram has, a has appended to it a kind of description of a situation, which is what's called a judgment. And each of the lines has um, a further text attached to it. And you read that if in a situation, if in when you are, um, when you cast the, yeah, the, the easiest way to cast it is to throw coins um, and to and to read from the heads or tails combinations of three coins, whether it's a broken line, whether it's an unbroken line, or whether it's a, a broken line that turns into its opposite, or whether it's an un, a unbroken line but but turns into its opposite does that make sense is that clear to me yes um you basically create a combination um either using card deck or using coins or using the specific coins designed for eaching yeah. i mean there's a reason why the eaching through reaching europe via jesuit explorers of china um, reached um, Leibniz um, and Leibniz understood that, oh my God, there are so many different combinations or also language arising from just combining the broken lines and the full lines that led him to develop the first binary system in the West. So many, many years before, centuries before um, Claude Shannon, um, Gottfried Leibniz was the first person and he was influenced. So basically he started reading the I Ching for solving mathematical engineering problems, um, yeah. because there's so much language um, yeah. that that can arise from it. Yeah, but basically the the idea of um... that's why coins work, by the way, right? Because it has heads of tails, right? Yeah, so it's exactly. uh, this or that. It's like pure yeah. logic. Yeah, exactly. And the positive or negative, this can be a line can be positive or negative, broken or unbroken, um, and that can translate into binary notation fairly easily, and that's where Leibniz uh, that's why Leibniz was drawn to it. You can make a six numeral binary figure out of each um, out of each I Ching hexagram. Um, but I, but in practice, when you use it, each each line has a um, has a text attached to it that you read if it's turning um, into its opposite. It's what you call a changing line. And so you would throw your coins or whatever, have your six-line figure, which may or may not be turning into a, another six-line figure, um, and you would read the associated bits of text attached to that. And I, I do that um, fairly regularly. We do it a couple of times a week at the moment. And I find it has a kind of 
unearing accuracy for talking about what's going on in my life and helping me make decisions. Um, that's hard to translate to someone who's not done it, but it seems always so precisely on the money. And further, it's embedded in a kind of system of Taoist kind of metaphysics. So you get the kind of, you end up imbibing the kind of gentle, um, uh, the kind of, the, 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 you kind of end up imbibing kind of Taoist thought, really, and, philo and, and philosophy by thinking about how these lines and how these, uh, how the hexagrams might um, apply to your life, basically. That's uh, how I use it. Um, that's such, such a good um, note. I always feel with the I Ching that it's a little bit similar to the weekly sermon for people who, Christians who go to church on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Like every sermon text will feel really relevant to what's going on in your life because they all cover the great areas of life yeah. of which we always have some going on. Yeah. And to me, that's this is why this works and this is why it's survived thousands of years in being relevant yeah. um so this i really recommend um what i mean i think it would only be fair if we touched upon maybe the more negative aspects here the you know criticisms of the teaching you know there are of course people who use it for divination reasons and in influencing their love life decisions or their trading activity you know i don't mm -hmm. want to comment on that um it's their responsibility um but there are also you know other kinds of uh, more intrinsic uh, pieces of criticism like you know it's basically a handbook for navigating the confucian court so mm -hmm. it's bureaucratic military minded um it's for really ambitious um courtiers how to get ahead um and it's also quite quite sexist <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, the marrying maiden, don't marry the maiden if she's powerful, et cetera, et cetera. The, the role of the father and the mother, um, you know, the, the fact that it's binary also in the sense that it, you know, ex expresses the, the masculine as the creative sky and the woman as the passive receiving earth. So, I mean, this is, I mean, everybody should be well conscious of the fact that this is from the antiquity. Mm -hmm. So, it's like using a Roman ogre's um, handbook for making modern decisions. So mm. for me, this makes sense because I I, I hope that I'm able to handle <laughs> these mm. his, historical um, biases in the text. But mm. do you have maybe a word on, on people who might be disturbed by these elements to the point where they just can't interact um, with this system at all? Well... Yes, it, the language is sexist, um, no doubt about it. Um, but you have to kind of see past that and recognise that's the product. That's because it's a product of the time. I mean, it's a product of Bronze Age China. It's three thousand years old, so it would be more surprising if it was in accord with modern gender norms, you know, and um, or any norms, right? Yeah, because yeah, it also talks yeah. about like you know superior man and inferior man, and you're like. No. <laughs> yeah, but the way I the way I, I would see that is um, and you talk you talked about people using it for their love life or using it for investing or um, really in the long term it should challenge you and make you grow your use it should 
stop you doing some things maybe that you're attached to or start you doing things where you need a bit of courage to 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 get going um or maybe it will reflect back your confusion about things and it's not the right time to make a choice so in any long term it's not you know like psychotherapy really in any in using something like that over the long term um it should really be you should think of it as a tool for growth and any tool for growth is going to challenge you hopefully in the right ways in ways that makes you grow um if it just told me what i wanted to hear all the time and i should i don't know you know, uh, chase after a woman who's not interested or have a really grandiose view of myself, then it would be no value. You know, um, it's of use in the sense that it challenges you. I would say it's made me a more reflective person, probably a gentler person. Um, it stopped me pursuing some courses of action that were to my detriment um and it's i found it quite confronting at times um sometimes I've, there's been a course of action of i i'm really attached to I, i'm like oh yeah I'm, I'm invested in this and Li Ching has said well no actually that's a bit of a daft idea and i reflecting on why uh, might be a useful opportunity for me if that makes sense almost like an external observer yeah. Uh, I think this is a really good um, moment to uh, segue into um, your upcoming um, salon. Um, and I would love to hear a little bit because you're a psychotherapist and having started with something that is, as I understand, a deeply cherished hobby um, of which mm -hmm. you know a lot. Um, but now you're kind of wading back to the turf of your uh, your profession, um, because you will be hosting this event um, as a, a free open discussion um, about uh, one of your psych psychotherapist heroes, mm -hmm. uh, but who also happens to be a controversial figure, if I understand correctly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your psychotherapist practice? How, what was your journey um, at happening upon this rock star and, and where you what what are, what what people should be expecting who who show um, up for your slot? Well, lo long story. Well, but I'll try and, I'll try and keep it short. Um, I first became interested in uh, Wilhelm uh, Reich um, in the nineties, sometime in the nineties, I think. Um, I'd read I uh, was reading a book called Cosmic Trigger Two by Robert Anton Wilson, and he mentioned a guy who had written a book, kind of but provided a psychological understanding of fascism. Um, and I was always interested in politics, but politics, particularly party politics in particular, often struck me as very superficial. So I was like, oh, right, there's someone who, 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 has a, who has a psychological understanding of fascism. Um, and the text he was referring to was uh, quite a famous book by uh, Reich, uh, which was um, his Mass Psychology of Fascism. He was in Berlin in the 30s and he observed fascism's rise. He fled fascism, actually, eventually ended up in the USA. Um, but he he and he kind of saw fascism with a psychotherapist's eye. And he saw what you might call all of the libidinal uh, energy in fascism, all the sexual energy, um, all that all that kind of tension, all that goose stepping. The candlelit rallies, the uniforms, the the, the the sort of you know the the screaming at rallies. He saw the kind of 
Um, how about was really working on people's deep emotions? Um, and that's kind of what the mass psychology of fascism is about. And then at university, um, I ended up doing a course where I could, um, one of the texts was mass psychology of fascism. It was just a unit that I did in my third year. Um, so that was a chance to study that a little bit more deeply. And I, I decided I had the opportunity to write a dissertation. So I thought I'll write my dissertation about right. Um, and I then started to look at the rest of his work, which is very, um, it, it's a, it's a complex story. It's a complex scientific story. Um, I'm trying to truncate it as much as I can. Uh, he started as a Freudian psycho psychotherapist. He then, his big innovation was to kind of look at people's character. So to say, the problem isn't necessarily just for symptoms. It's the way a person is in the world, maybe. Like someone may be of uh, uh, things you might not regard as as, as a symptom. Um, maybe someone is particularly masculine and they're particularly stubborn alongside that. Um also, let's look at their character and the way that they present in the room with me. Uh, you know, if a guy strides into a room, uh, shakes your hand really hard uh, and sits back in his chair with his jaw pushed out, that, there's, a, there's, there's a whole message there before he's even said anything. Reich said, let's look at that stuff. And that led him to look at the body. Um, so he was the first psychoanalyst to bring the body into therapy. Um but alongside that, um, he was always looking for um, energy and kind of in very concrete terms. With Freud's idea of libido, which most people think of as something fairly abstract, internal, metaphysical, White was, White was actually like, no, what is this? Is this a concrete thing? Is this something we can measure? Is this connected with sex somehow? So... Without getting, how, is, into, how is this different from Gestalt? Um, he right was an influence on Gestalt. Uh, he was an influence on Fritz Perls and Paul Goodman, who founded Gestalt. So yeah, he was uh, he was a huge influence. In fact, most of the certainly all of the psychotherapies with a body influence that came out of the fifties and sixties, um, Reich had an influence on uh, Stanislav Grof and holotropic breathwork. Um, Style, uh, yeah, various other things. Rolfing, um, all of these guys would have been influenced by Reich in in some way. They, they would have read him um, and known about him, but they would also have known what happened to him, um, which was which was quite unfortunate. Basically, long story short, um, he started study he because he was interested in libido as energy um he started to do experiments in cell biology when he was in europe in after he was in berlin um if i get the chronology right um he was in well he ended up in norway um and he he left norway fleeing the nazis um in 1939 and around that time he was starting to investigate um he was looking at cells to kind of look at how he could um, have cells moved, have a pulsate, which is a big thing for Reich, the idea of a pulsation, 
Um, and seeing if he could measure this energy. Um, in uh, When he got to New York, um, he set up a therapy practice there and he set up a laboratory as well. And he found some of the samples that he treated had this unusual uh, kind of um, radioactive uh, effect. And he, he um and he set about trying to isolate this energy um and, and and measure it and that kind of set the trajectory for the rest of his for the rest of his um rest of his career. Unfortunately, however, in the in the late forties, um of a a woman called Mildred Ed, Ed Mildred Eddie Brady published an article called The Strange Case of Wilhelm Reich, um, which made all kinds of, uh, which said how weird his stuff was, the peculiarities of his energy, and made all these kind of sexual allegations about him as well. One of his most famous books, apart from Mass Psychology of Fascism, is called Function of the Orgasm, and it talks about, um, you know, it talks about the orgasm and its role in our kind of psychic life. Um and it talks about it as an energetic phenomena, as a kind of phenomena that kind of a, a way of kind of understanding Reich, a way into thinking about him is to think about the idea of um, pulsation and charge and discharge uh, and, and release. And for Reich, we're kind of and lots of biological phenomena. You can sort of understand them as as kind of charge and release, laughing, crying. Um, they're both forms of charge and release, and and Reich talked about orgasm in the same way, uh, which obviously um, kind of alarmed a lot of people or upset a lot of people, um, being so frank and forthright about sex. Uh, and this attracted the attention, uh, this article by Mildred Eddie Brady attracted the attention of the Food and Drug Administration in America, um, they did some tests on some of his devices. Really declared them a declared that they were fraudulent. The tests were really badly done as well, and not you know not good science at all. Mm -hmm. um, Reich uh, uh, was sent to work was sent to court. He he unwisely, in my view, uh, refused to appear in court because he said. How can the court legislate on a on a basic scientific discovery? He wrote a statement to, um, yeah, he wrote a, a a statement to the court saying, um, basically, this is natural science. You can't legislate on this, or, on which is you know like it'd be like legislating on gravity. Obviously, the court took an extremely dim view of that. One of his acquaintances moved. Um, some of his devices across state lines, which which I think made it a federal offence, um, and he was sentenced to uh, two years in prison uh, in nineteen fifty six, and he died in he died in prison after nine months. So it's quite a tragic story. It yeah, and also the other thing, um, uh, they burnt uh, all of his books. Um, and his papers and his journals. Um, not everything. Um, who burned it? Or yeah, who burned them? Yeah. Who burned the, the, 
he called he called the energy organ and any and any of his uh, books that mentioned organ energy, um, and a lot more besides were uh, were incinerated. Mm. Um, so he's one of the few people who had the was the only person I know definitely has the uh, has the uh, distinction of having his books burnt by the Nazis um, and the uh, and the US government. Mm. So yeah. Um, the kind of back well, it's one of the reasons his books are still in print because that that so disgusted uh, Maurice Strauss and Forrest Strauss and and Giro, he decided to try and keep his books in print after that. So um, they were available after that, but you know there would have been a lot of copies of the journals and stuff and the smaller publications that were sure yeah just burnt. What um this is, yeah I mean just the burning the burning of books in itself is is a, is a great tragedy but if it's an oeuvre that's um unthinkable in like a very like brief paragraph what what would be an objective way to evaluate this career and I'm asking this because I'm always wondering myself whether there is an objective way to um at any point evaluate careers especially in science when you know, you can have somebody still controversial a hundred years after their death, and then something happens in science, a discovery, and two hundred and fifty years later, they are rehabilitated. So, but right now in twenty twenty three, what um, well, I, I summarize um, an objective look at uh, his contributions. Well, the, the easiest way to me to evaluate um, his work is to read the best books in the field and to read him. He's a guy who. He, people love him because the story is so fascinating and so weird. And it ended up even weirder. It ended up with the weather, manipulating the weather, UFOs, all, all sorts of really, really peculiar stuff. You know the um, you know the song "Cloud Busting" by Kate yeah. Bush. That's about right. Um, it's like uh, Donald Sutherland in the video plays right. I did a little Twitter thread about it. Um, so it ends up very, very weird. Um, but the way I think, uh, yeah, and people love him and people like to reproduce the most lurid stories about him, which aren't, which aren't true. He was mad. He was a crank. Uh, it's all made up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I would say don't read the secondary sources unless they're the really good ones. There's an excellent book by um, a guy called Jim Strick. Um, who's just done a new pod. He's just done a new, um, on a podcast that I tweeted this morning called Wilhelm Wright Biologist, which is about his work with biology in um in Norway. And I would recommend people read that and I would recommend people read him and make your own mind up. But I would generally steer clear of the secondary sources because they tend towards the lurid and it's probably mm. better going back towards the original text. Um, and he I mean he was one of the people who said that you know having the patient lie on the couch and you you're just there to listen that's not as good as having a conversation right which is i mean if you go to therapy today unless you're a diehard freudian uh psychoanalysis fan you will probably be sitting looking at your therapist and having a human conversation mm -hmm. um that comes from reich as well right or at least partly in, in part yeah but the thing, the real therapeutic innovation, I think, is bringing the body into therapy. Um, and he his therapy changed over his career, which I think is a good sign. Um, you know, 
to have your practice and how you practice evolve. Um, and his biographer, Myron Sharif, says that tools by the 50s, Reich's therapy had become nearly wordless. He was just working with the body. Um, one of his ideas is um, uh, it's, it's called armoring. Um, and it's basically unconscious tensions that you might hold that limit um, emotional expression. So if you imagine the physiological side of emotional repression, you might say, you might notice someone they've got a um, a particular way that they look at something, they might have a suspicious look. Uh, you might notice when I'm sitting with a client, I might notice uh, if we start talking about a certain topic, maybe about sex, they might start holding their breath or something like that, or their breath begins to tense up. Uh, then it might be the way they hold their back, they might push their chest out, for instance, and it looks like it might be limiting their breath or their breathing or, or some of their feelings in some way. And what Reich did was he said, I want to work directly on what's um, preventing emotional expression, um, so working directly on the body. Um, and that was the big sort of psychotherapeutic innovation. Mm-hmm. But I think... Um, and the so, coining of the term sexual revolution, I think it was one of his books, no? And I don't think that anybody used it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's correct. But I think a lot of the, what passed as the sexual revolution uh, like, wouldn't have been particularly enamoured with, you know, just the kind of being able to be promiscuous, have as many partners as possible and, you know... Uh, fuck without fear of consequences that was that isn't something that would have interested right at all really yeah i think the thing that's missing when people talk about right and the sexual revolution is a therapeutic principle is is kind of the idea of contact you know if i'm sitting with a client i think it's a good session if i have made contact with them if i feel uh like we've connected somehow emotionally and both connect both connected with me um maybe they've allowed themselves to be vulnerable i've maybe allowed myself to be vulnerable mm. and that's kind of occurred in the fair in the therapy setting and what it's also the- a bit like like uh when you're trying to divide the artist and the work um yeah. but you have something that and i i really would like to close you know our session here with kind of talking about the afterlife of reich and how some of his ideas um you know have built into either colloquialisms or practices that uh, psychotherapists still um, still do on a daily basis. They might not even know where it comes from, you know. Um, but here we have somebody who did have transformative ideas um, and then went increasingly weird, right? Um, cloudbusters, as you mentioned, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we can't also shut ourselves away from the very serious scandals you know, children's safety, molestation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I understand that these were not directly related to him, but um, nevertheless, it would be, you know, also disrespectful toward the survivors of these um, instances, you know, if we didn't acknowledge that these are also parts of, of his legacy. But I would love to hear about the, the reason why... I'm not aware of there being any... Le- any kind of sexual abuse legacies that followed from Reich, that I would think is, yeah, 
I'm not aware of been nothing like that emotion in his life that I'm aware of anyway. I mean, you know, from the era, you know, fried, et cetera, et cetera, the not necessarily him, but the whole practice of the contemporary um 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 you know patients. I mean, there were a lot of crossing of lines and um I understand that he uh probably represented a more maybe naive and pure way of of of, of interacting with people, but he was still a mm-hmm. uh, member of of um of the of, of a professional community that today seems archaic in its view of of child sexuality, for instance, or uh what counts as a hysterics fantasy versus um actual assault. Um so I just want to acknowledge that. Um but let's uh, uh close the session a little bit. Um you know looking at the parts of the Reichian legacy that you know maybe your salon attendees might be familiar with they don't even know um necessarily that it comes from him and what are some of the things that you yourself use actively and you think more serious professional psychotherapists should should incorporate into their practices so just the idea of embodiment um the very trendy right like body work etc etc it's like we are rediscovering this yeah yeah and that's that's one of the reasons i suppose i guess that's one of the reasons i'm talking about right at the moment i'm aware of how um interested people are in body work now um you know i suppose the 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 key text there would be something like body knows the score by bessel van der kolk and you know and that's so widely read um and I'm what I'm guess I'm kind of doing is exposing some of the intellectual roots of the kind of current trend towards embodiment, which goes back to right. That's incredible. Um, but I'm so, so grateful that you brought this um guy on my radar. Um I I had a period in my life where when I took all the I don't know why they count, you know, everything is controversial. Um, you know, Rorschach test is co- controversial. I know, I understand why Sondi test is controversial, but I took all this stuff and, you know, coming from Budapest myself, obviously I'm extremely yeah. um, interested in the Austro-Hungarian um, uh, circle yeah. of psychologists. And and it's kind of insane to me that, you know, you have this group of weirdos that the outside world doesn't really know what to do with um who end up producing something that unlike you know completely abstract art that other circles of weirdos might produce ends up eminently useful and basic tenets of our culture mm. yeah 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 don't even think about the outcasts and you know alien chasers and you know, energy box experimenters that that endowed us with with this self knowledge, or, or or with self knowledge taken for so, so granted that it's you know it would have been impossible to imagine in the twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I don't know if you've ever read James Hillman. Um, he um, there's a book of his called The Soul's Code, and that's really interesting because at the beginning of that he says. Basically, the Freudian understanding of uh, parental influence are formative uh, on the on the psyche of a child and uh, influencing in later life. He says that is so ubiquitous we don't even realise it. Yeah, it's it's, it's like it's one like of Shakespeare's swear words, you know, that end up yeah. in 
in in contemporary English, and nobody knows that they're speaking Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly that. That's wonderful. Well done. Thank you so much for for introducing us to this um, wild guy who has informed our life um, and who is trending again. Uh, when is your salon, and um, what? How should people prepare? It's the twenty fourth of June. Um, and I would encourage people to prepare just by um, thinking about um, connections, any connections that they might um, make between emotional expression and the body and, and, and the psyche. You know, how, how does your own uh, embodiment uh, affect you and how does your own... How is your emotional life mediated or limited or, or not by the body? Encourage people to bring along those kind of questions. Oh, my God. Yes, the body does keep the score. And yeah. I'm so happy that uh, psychotherapy is rediscovering um, this important um, piece of wisdom. Thank you so much, Dan. I will try to come to your event as well. And I will look uh, up Wil Wilhelm Reif's uh, life a little bit more. Um, and for those interested in itching, maybe then, you know, after this one, we'll do another session and then we can all learn about this ancient uh, sacred book um, that weirdly <laughs> somehow also led us to have computers. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Dan. I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you.